Welcome to the Christianity 101 podcast, where we examine big ideas in Christianity from the perspective of those who aren't quite sure what they believe. Hello, everybody. I hope that you are doing well on this Tuesday morning. I'm going to open and close this episode of our podcast with a quick apology just for the scheduling delays. The trip that Chris and I got to take was excellent, but it put us behind a little bit on the eight ball as far as production schedule. We are back on track, and hopefully by the end of next week we'll be totally caught up um, as in as far as lesson writing as well as podcast production. So by the end of this series, we should have recorded online um, all of the podcasts that should help serve as supplemental material. But for now, I'm just excited to get back into the fall, and we will try to deal with that well and prepare us for Israel and Jesus, which should be coming out quickly. So with that, let's just go ahead and get started. Today's episode is Why the Fall? It is the second part in our six-episode series that's walking through Scripture. We started with Why Creation. That was the episode released yesterday. Today is going to be Why the Fall? And we're going to look at how the fall of humankind affected the good creation that God carefully ordered and arranged and seeing what ramifications that has on our world today. So I would say that I'm excited to discuss this. It's an important topic, but I'm not necessarily too excited because it's kind of a downer because it, it really it has a lot of explanatory power to explain the universe as we see it. Um, to explain our experiences in life, but it also is is somewhat sad because it, we understand that the world is not as it should be, but we will get into all of that in due course. So, we are getting back to our episode on the fall, which is the doctrine in Christianity that talks about why people are the way that they are and why the world is the way that it is. It's it's Christians' understanding of how the earth came into being and society came into being the way it is today. It's a really important doctrine and it has a lot of implications on the gospel, has a lot of implications on Christian teaching, and I think it's one of those doctrines, like I said in the episode on the gospel, it's it's the easiest doctrine for Christians to point to to say, look, Christian teaching accords with reality. Look at how human beings act and behave, and look at how human beings expect the world to be. Um, In order to talk about the fall, we have to first go to uh, Genesis chapter 3 through 6. Last time we really focused on Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where we talked about how God created a good creation, a perfect creation in which he was God and he created people in order to co-labor for him to continue to bring order into chaos. So God is bringing order into chaos after he created the world and he commissioned human beings to help him by filling the earth and um, increasing in number and, and he wanted to see a flourishing society, the same flourishing that existed within the universe, he wanted to see within the community of people. Now humans chose not to live according to how God wanted us to live. We chose to live according how we wanted to live, and we brought God's good creation into chaos. That is today's lesson. If you recall, the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, 1, 
it tells us that the earth was formless and empty, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now that formless and empty is an attempted English translation of the Hebrew word tohu wabohu. Tohu wabohu. And this word in the Hebrew language is their word that is associated with chaos. It's their word of total disorder. It's the, a word that's associated with arid places in the desert, places where order, God's flourishing order, is not present. So the earth was formless and empty. Tohu wabohu. And... The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, waters being symbolic of chaos in the ancient Near East. And from this chaos, God created, ordered, and arranged a flourishing world. And he planted a garden where he was intimately present with Adam and Eve. God set Adam and Eve to work in the garden, giving them the task to use their creative energies and labor to expand the Garden of Eden across the whole earth. That was the commission he gave them in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. In this garden, the Garden of Eden, there was no suffering, evil, or tears. All of their needs were provided for, and they stood before God and each other naked and unashamed. And that naked and unashamed thing, that's not just a state of their physical undress. It is total comfort with one another, total vulnerability before God and others. That is what it means to be naked and unashamed. It does not mean... Um, simply that they were naked, it means that they had nothing to hide. They were completely innocent the way that children are innocent. They have nothing to hide from each other and no fear of any kind of punishment or repercussion because they know that they've done nothing wrong. Now, all of their needs were provided and everything was good. But within the garden, there was one commandment from God that they were asked to keep. Within the garden, there was a tree that, was, that had fruit on it that God told them not to eat of the fruit of this tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God strictly warned Adam and Eve that the day that they ate from the tree, they would surely die. It's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. Adam and Eve faced a free and unhindered choice. They could either trust their ears by obeying God's word, he did not give them his reasoning why, he simply gave them the command. So trust their ears that, hey, God's provided for everything we need. We're going to trust you at your word for this. Or they could trust their eyes. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, it says that the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. Bit on by the serpent, which was the, the symbol of the enemies of God and, and chaos, Adam and Eve followed their eyes rather than their ears, and they rebelled against God. They ate the fruit, completely ruining their innocence, fracturing the shalom that God had so beautifully created. Immediately, Adam and Eve realized that they were naked, which is far more significant than simply without clothes. Their innocence had been lost. They learned what good and evil was at the very moment that they themselves became evil. So, in their response, they behaved continuing as children. They futilely hid from God. God was seeking after them, and they ran and hid, as many children do whenever they realize that they've done something wrong, and they're trying to cover it up, and so they go and hide. Curiously, however, when God found them, he did not deal with them as their sin deserved. Rather than, ki than killing them, as would have been just, and also it was what God said. He said, hey, if you eat this, you'll surely die. And that day, God provided for their needs. He made them clothes. And he took care of them. 
despite what they had done. God also pronounced three curses, which is less God adding punishment on top of what they had done in order to punish them for their actions, but more so God explained the consequences of their actions. And in this, he, it, it, the way that that functions in the, in the ancient world is, is pronouncing of curses. God cursed the snake, placing enmity between its offspring and the offspring of man, marking it as the symbol of God's enemies. God cursed the woman, increasing her pain in childbearing and fracturing the relationship between her and the man. It changed from joyful mutual submission to strife and power struggle. And finally, God cursed the man, making his work difficult and futile, filled with frustrations and setbacks, and ultimately a fleeting thing. Unfortunately, Genesis chapter 3 is where most people stop their analysis of the fall. We must remember that the chapters and verses that were added into the Bible were a later addition. They're of human origin, not divine, and they can sometimes subdivide stories in the wrong places. This is one of those cases. The story of Cain and Abel, which comes in Genesis 4, Cain and Seth's genealogies, which is the other part of Genesis 4 and Genesis 5, um, and the story all the way up until Noah, Genesis 6 through 9, are continuations of the fall. What begins with the distrust of God's word by Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 moves into violence against a brother in Genesis chapter 4 and spirals into violence across the entire world in Genesis chapter 6, leading God to reverse his actions in the creation story, bringing the waters back over the earth in order to begin anew. That's the idea of this flood story. Remember, at the very beginning, the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters, and after the flood, the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters once again. Our task as humans was to cultivate God's good creation, living joyfully in His presence with one another. Sin, which began as a simple disobedience against the Word of God, led to total societal violence, subjecting God's good creation to tyrannical and violent abuse. That is what is going on in the first few chapters of Genesis, and that is the whole nature of the fall. Once we humans begin to cease listening to God and begin to do what is right in our own eyes, it starts small, but eventually it leads to total societal chaos. I'd like for us to take a little bit of time and focus just a little bit more upon the implications of the fall of mankind. Now remember, the story that we're setting up is the entire story of Scripture. We started with how God created a, the world, the universe. He created it, and it was very good. And now in our story, we see how humankind messed that good creation up, which had lasting consequences for humans and the creation itself. This is a very important thing for us to understand the biblical worldview. It has a ton of explanatory power of understanding why humans are the way that they are and why humans act the way that they act. If you were to take a poll of every single human being across the face of the earth and you were to ask them the question, is the world the way that it should be? I believe that nigh on every single person would answer, no, the world is not as it should be. If you ask the follow-up question of, well, what should be done to fix the world, then I believe you would get a whole host of different answers that range the gambit of how we need to fix the world. But there would be different answers from different cultures, from the same cultures, and all of that. There is no consensus there. But I do believe there is a consensus amongst humans that 
The world is not as it should be. The follow-up question that we must ask is why? Why is it that so many people in the world believe that the world isn't as it should be? If the scientific mythologies are correct, the world is simply an accident. And everyone and every person and every plant and every animal that you see within the world is exactly as it should be. It is a product of long periods of evolution, of long periods of genetic transformation, of becoming more and more adaptable to your environment. There's no problems with the way that the world is. It is simply the product of natural selection over the course of time. Yet, most people who believe in historic materialism, which is that scientific mythology that believes that all that there is is matter and we are simply the product of long history of, prob of chance, probability, and accident over the course of billions of years, most people who believe in that also are social activists in some way or another, or also believe that there is right and wrong, good and evil, things that should be done and things that shouldn't be done. They would say that the Holocaust was wrong and bad. That's the extreme example, but you could pick any host of moral issues or any host of uh, societal problems, and they would probably have an opinion on that. Ultimately, if the world is a cosmic accident, then there is no right or wrong. There is no good or evil. Those are imagined concepts, and when it really comes down to it, the world is exactly how it should be. The world is simply that product of evolution over time and the survival of the fittest over time, and anything that happens is what is supposed to happen because there's no ultimate purpose or guiding meaning for the universe. If we contrast that with the Christian view of the fall, it really makes a lot of sense of why so many people in the world believe that something is inherently wrong with the world. We Christians say that the world was created good, that the world was perfect, and then it was messed up by sin, and that the world is headed back towards that perfection because God is restoring and redeeming his creation. It explains why we humans have this vague sense of things are not the way that they should be. We have this sense that when we see injustice or when we see poverty or when we see oppression or violence or war, we get this vague sense that that is not supposed to be that way. The doctrine of the fall of mankind accounts for our the fact that humans all believe that something has gone wrong. And it also accounts for the fact that humans have totally different answers on why, how it should be fixed. You see, if we humans are fallen creatures, that means we are flawed. That means that we have a vague sense of what's right, but we're also confused. And we also go our own way rather than going with God's way. And there are an infinite number of ways for us to think wrongly about the solutions to the problems of the world. And it makes perfect sense that over the course of time, we humans who are thinking wrongly, our fallen creatures, would come up with all sorts of different reasons that all probably have explanatory power and all probably are good on some level, but ultimately are not the solution to the deepest and most fundamental problems of the world. We'll talk about those problems as the course of time goes on, but I wanted to just bring up this, the fact that the fall of mankind does account for why humans behave the way that they do and why they operate the way that they do. And I think it accounts for it better 
than that of the historic materialists and their explanation for um, why humans behave the way that they do. To pivot just a little bit, I'd like to take a moment and look at how sin has affected the world. The three primary relationships that were broken because of sin. The first is that relationship between humans and God. We notice that in the garden it tells us, it tells us in Genesis chapter 2 that in the garden Adam and Eve walked with God. They had this intimate relationship where they were with each other and happy and content and, and in this flourishing and thriving relationship. And we humans were created in the image of God and we run on God like a car runs on fuel. We need the presence of God. We need the relationship with God. The Bible tells us elsewhere that every good and perfect gift comes from God. And that's true. The rain that we get, the sunshine that we get, all of the food that we eat, none of this stuff we earned, it was all given to us. We did not create the world and place it in the exact position that we would not be too hot or not be too cold. We did not create the atmospheric pressure that allowed for our lungs to function. We did not create the ecosystems that allow our foods to be gathered. We humans were given every good and perfect gift from God. And we desperately, desperately need not only the gifts from God, but God himself. That is one of the fundamental needs, the lowest order of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's not air, it's not shelter, it's not food, it's not community. A fundamental need of human beings is God. When sin entered into the cosmos, when we humans chose to do what is right in our own eyes and not to do what is right in God's eyes, we fractured that relationship. The Garden of Eden is not paradise because of its abundance of food or absence of sorrow. The Garden of Eden is paradise because God is present within it. Paradise or heaven is not some ethereal land where humans receive all comfort and happiness. Paradise is when humans are in the full presence of the living God. After Adam and Eve were thrown out of the Garden of Eden, God still maintained his relationship with them and their offspring. God's presence was never fully removed from the earth or from us, as we talked about. God's given us all sorts of good gifts. If God removed his full presence, it would be hell. But sin does not permit us to walk with God as Adam and Eve did in the garden, as it was in the beginning. That is for our own protection, it's not for our punishment, because if we were in our current state to walk with God, to be in the full presence of God, God is completely good, as we talked about in the episode on the gospel. It would not be good for us. God's holiness would consume us, because fundamentally we are selfish, and we are not living in the pattern that we should be. And so God withdraws himself from us to, to an extent and, and calls us towards him, but he must first, before he can re-enter our world and walk with us as God walked with us, with Adam and Eve, he must purify us of our sin. We must be made clean and washed pure. And that will happen as the story goes along. But for the sake of this lesson, understand that because of sin, the relationship between humans and God has been broken. The second major consequence of the fall is the loss of relationship between human beings. If you look at that Genesis chapter 3, you see that immediately after Adam and Eve ate the fruit, their relationship broke down. 
Adam was supposed to be Eve's protector, laying himself down for her and seeking her interests before his own. He failed to keep her from the serpent. Despite being right there with her, he failed to counsel her and tell her, no, don't do this, Eve. Hear the word of the Lord. Remember what God told us. And then afterwards, when God came and said, what have you done? He tried to blame her for his own sin. In the next chapter, we find Cain slaying Abel out of envy, despite being warned directly by God. And seven generations later, the seventh son of Cain, he had gotten so violent and selfish that he killed a young man for simply striking him, for giving him an insult. And his name was Lamech. The, a lot of people in the Jewish culture believe that he is the worst person to have ever lived. He murders a young man for an insult and tells his two wives about it. Once we begin to do what is right in our own eyes and pursue our own interests over that of the interests of others, we begin to harm those around us, either intentionally or unintentionally. Eventually, that will lead to violence across entire societies, which we find in Genesis chapter 6, when it tells us that the whole world was full of violence and full of evil. The last relationship that we're going to discuss is the relationship between human beings and creation. Originally, the picture of human beings operating with creation was that of a garden and a gardener. We were stewards of God's good creation. We were placed in a garden to tend it. We worked with creation. It provided for our needs and we took care of it and ordered and arranged it to make it flourish. After the Garden of Eden, we began to dominate the creation in a way that forgot God's picture of stewardship. We began to take advantage of creation. We began to use it for our own interest and not consider how we impacted and affected the cre- God's good creation. Christians have more reason to be environmentalists than anyone else in the entire world. Because we know that God's creation is good, and that God tasked humanity with the role of preserving that creation ordering and, and ordering and arranging it to make it flourish. Now, I'm not arguing that we believe that nature is, is more important or more significant than humans, and I understand that humans absolutely need to use that creation in order for their own flourishing, but to do so in violent and irresponsible ways is not a part of the biblical picture of how God's people are supposed to relate to creation. But we know as humans living in a fallen world that we will choose to use God's creation, to use each other, and to even try to use God for our own interests. That's part of living in a fallen world, is seeing how humans have been broken and misled and confused in order to chase after the things of their own hearts rather than hear and listen to the word of the Lord. The last thing we must discuss today is this concept of the righteous remnant amid the brokenness. These six chapters, Genesis 3 through 9, primarily show us the devastating effect of sin. But it also plants the seeds of one of the most important themes of the entire Bible. The theme is that of the righteous remnant. Two genealogies are present within these chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5. The first is that of Lamech and Cain. We already discussed this. It's the seventh son is Lamech, and he is this wicked man, and you see a pattern of wickedness that starts with Cain and ends with his son. His son, well, continues into his son, Lamech. The second genealogy is in Genesis chapter 5, and it's the genealogy of Adam and Seth, and it goes to Methuselah and Enoch and Noah. 
Enoch is the seventh son of Adam, and his he is so righteous that he was taken up into heaven. You see kind of a play going on by the author of Genesis. From this genealogy comes Noah, the righteous man through whom God preserves the human race through the flood. Righteous does not mean blameless, but we see that while evil is present in the world, some remain faithful to God. That is an important theme that I'm going to leave with you there because it's developed throughout in the story of Israel, in Jesus, in the church, and ultimately into new creation. It's a story, a tension that happens is, is that the good and the evil exist together. That in the midst of violence and brokenness and evil, there remains a righteous remnant through whom God will work and bring about flourishing once again to God. to start out, and I hope you enjoyed this lesson, but just as a little postscript, just start out by apologizing for the erratic nature of the posting of these podcasts. My travel schedule put us a little bit behind on getting the lessons produced, and then some stuff got busy at church and ended up a couple weeks behind. I intend to get back on a regular production schedule. My goal is to get Why Israel and Why Jesus both done before the end of next week, and that will pull us into Why New Creation and we should be back on to where we have all the lessons out by the end of the series. I hope that these serve as a helpful addendum to the conversations that you're having in your Bible classes and maybe a reference point that you can go back to and, and hear some of the message and thinking again. If you have any questions or would like to comment on the podcast or talk about the various things, please shoot me an email, zach at amchurch.net. I'd love to hear from you. Just get your take on what's going on and, and help us to continue studying God's Word. And hopefully we can learn more about it and be able to learn and explain it to people who don't quite know or maybe don't have a good